Let me begin by explaining the title of this talk. Uh, in each of his two works on ethics and the moral life, Aristotle makes comments early on about the importance of a target in the moral life. In his lesser-known Eudemian ethics, he says, everyone able to live according to his own choice must set up a target for living beautifully, either honor or glory or wealth or education, looking toward which he will perform all his actions, since not to order one's life to one end is a sign of great imprudence. Here Aristotle proposes a number of targets upon which people set their sights in life. Each of these things, honor, glory, wealth, education, seems to constitute, seems to some people to constitute the good life and therefore, as I translated Aristotle, a beautiful life. In Greek, these concepts, good and beautiful, come together un under one name, uh, kalos. And that name signifies it as beautiful a little more than it signifies it as good. Okay? Now, I'm claiming here that the word cool names a certain target for the good life and for living beautifully. I do not think anyone would deny that many desire and even strive to be cool. They fear more, more than anything else not being cool and perform, perform most, if not all, their actions from this fear. Immediately, two examples of cool come to my mind. James Dean and James Bond. <laughs> there may be many examples of people, personas, or characters cool enough to equal these two Jameses, but I doubt that any could excel them. If, any one of, if one of them is more cool than the other, I certainly cannot see it. I hope to show, and I think these two Jameses exemplify what I am to show, that what we call cool, when we use it in this sense, is, fall, is a false, deceptive understanding of, the beautiful, of a beautiful life and one that corrupts the moral life and prevents one from attaining happiness. Uh, note something else here. Someone may object that the account of someone cool that I'm going to give is inconsistent or impossible. I agree. Cool names a kind of beauty in life that is not real and has no substance. Do note that I'm not concerned here principally with another use of the word cool. Like great, fabulous, terrific, and many other words, cool has lost much of its original force as an ethical judgment and merely means good or I like it. I regret the fact that so many words can have such distinct connotations, that have such distinct connotations, function more or less as one. I should also say that this very bland sense of cool does seem inextricably tied to the moral sense I'm about to describe. But here my concern is principally with the aim in the moral life rather than reform of our language. Nonetheless, I can't restrain myself, I urge you to take care in using this word no less than any other word. I suggest this especially from two motives. We ought to feel humility and gratitude before English as one of the most excellent languages ever developed by the human race. We owe it to those that have formed this language and given it us to use it well. Second, we ought from the love of our intellect to love language as the intellect's most immediate bodily instrument. Language is even more immediate to the intellect than books are. Uh, I, th I think that's pretty impressive myself. Uh, in language, more than anywhere else, the spiritual, in fact, the angelic and divine part of our soul and being expresses itself immediately in the sensible world. We should honor that part by using words well. In fact, my first memory of acting cool was the time I decided, as I later put it, to use all the words.
the bad ones as well as the good ones. <laughs> I was then about 11. I had nearly tripped as I walked with classmates through the park. I believe I tripped over a sprinkler head and the sprinkler head came out of its place in the ground. I used a vulgar word as I kicked the sprinkler head away from me. Now as I clearly realized even then, I, I would never have done this if there had not been others there and I felt ashamed of this fact. Uh, but I wanted to appear a certain way to others. In particular, I wanted to impress Stanley Rogers. I wanted to feel some bond between him and me, and I wanted to separate from others that I probably resembled. <laughs> now, something far more important, something I felt but could not have put into words at that time, was the fact that I was violating my sense of what was beautiful. Even at the time, I felt that I had refrained from using these words not merely because they were forbidden. Speaking well was beautiful, Slang and vulgarity, for reasons I didn't then realize, were not beautiful. And I should say, slang for the most, slang and vulgarity for the most part are not beautiful. Now I can clearly say that I did this to be cool, but what might seem odd is that I would never have used the word cool to describe the, the act at the time. Cool was on a list of words the hippies used. Cool was similar to groovy, far out, right on, and the like. These words seem slightly passe, not quite old-fashioned, but it was certainly not our slang. I had no idea at the time that the word would return for the second or third time, I believe, until it has fixed itself solidly in standard American English. Unfortunately, it has done so together with a view of happiness and human flourishing that I understand to be highly corruptive of the moral life. I don't think it's the most corruptive uh, uh, form of uh, false beauty, uh, um, uh, but it's probably the one most commonly at work in our day. Eh? This corruptive character is what I want to focus on. To do so, I'll begin by discussing the tie between beauty and the moral life. Now, man is distinct from all other beings, even angels, uh, but most obviously from animals, by a moral life. Only for man is there a distinct part of life in which he thinks about good and evil and strives to conform himself to this understanding. To say this in another way, with his intellect, <clears throat> man thinks about right and wrong and strives to bring the rest of, his power, rest of the powers that cause action in him with these thoughts about right and wrong. In particular, he strives to bring his will, his desires, and the spirited part of his nature into agreement with his conception of good and evil, right and wrong. I note in passing that this also demands that his understanding of these things be consistent and thereby in agreement with reality. From this itself, from the agreement of these powers and their actions with our understanding, life is beautiful. I will briefly show how the moral life is beautiful by pointing out first that it has the three properties of beauty, clarity, integrity, and proportion, and second, that it thereby agrees with the definition of the beautiful. St. Thomas offers the definition in two forms, what when seen pleases, or that which when apprehended pleases. Now, it is not difficult to see from the description I have given of the moral life that it has clarity. Clarity, clearness, brightness is nothing other than the power something has to be easily seen. A beautiful face is easier to look at and see than an ugly one, 
One finds it easy to focus on a beautiful face. Uh, you can focus on it on lots of different places and so on. Right? If our desires and choices agree with our understanding of right and wrong, our actions are easier to understand. We can explain them. I recall hearing a soldier pleading guilty to a, the murder of civilians in an Afghani village. The judge asked him why he did it, and he quite appropriately responded, I ask myself that question every day, and I don't know why. He does not know why, because at some level he did not act according to reason, according to his understanding of what is right. Only that understanding of what is good and right makes our actions intelligible and thus fully open to scrutiny. In a similar way, the moral life has integrity, its unity and wholeness. When I was a boy, attention to this was called a holistic view of human life. Uh, our intellect is the one power able to integrate all the parts of human nature for a very simple reason. The intellect can understand the other parts of man. The other parts of man, the other parts cannot understand each other. They cannot even understand themselves. Now the other parts of human nature important to the moral life all have some inclination to something good and the intellect understands them by understanding that good and the power's order to that good. So we understand our digestive powers through its order to growth and maintenance of our bodies. We understand our sexual powers through their order to reproduction. For this reason, the understanding of the good is able to integrate these and other human powers so that they constitute one principle of the moral life. The powers of a man successful in the moral life work together to cause actions that constitute a life that is one in the manner of a whole. Very different are the actions of the man who refuses to live in accord with his understanding of right and wrong. His actions are not merely difficult or impossible to understand. They also fail to, co to cohere with one another in reality. Again, in addition to the clarity and integrity of the moral life is its proportion. Precisely because the other powers act in agreement with the intellect's understanding of what is right and wrong, each of these powers bring, brings, each of these powers brings forth, in a good life, acts proportionate to the role of the good the act pursues. Food, drink, and sex, as well as ambition, pride, and daring, uh, the exchange of goods, all contribute to a good life, but they do so according to various proportions. Only if one aims well at what is right and further at what is right for himself uh, with his particular temperament and circumstances will these all be proportioned to one another and ordered to someone good, as Aristotle suggested, is necessary for living beautifully. Finally, such a life is beautiful, as we can see by bringing it under the definition of the beautiful, that which, when seen or apprehended, pleases. Because it has integrity, it is and appears to us as one integrated life and not a life that begins over again and again and fails to, to hold together or fails to make sense. Precisely because the moral life is made intelligible by our understanding of what is good and right, we can see or apprehend it and do so easily and in great detail. And because the parts have their proper proportion to one another, apprehending such a life pleases us. 
This pleasure follows the agreement of the proportions in this life with the proportions among the parts of human nature in our understanding. Now, to see that we necessarily experience the moral life not only as good and right, but also as beautiful, is critical to a proper grasp of the moral life. We cannot merely experience it as the good life, much less as a life of duty and responsibility, as some seem to think. Rather, because the moral life proceeds from our consideration of right and wrong and our concrete application of that understanding to our actions in reality, we live the moral life precisely as we observe it. Seeing our passions and actions is an essential part of the moral life. It must then necessarily please or pain us to see how we live. Note that I do not deny that one way of becoming a bad man is precisely to turn the mind away from the principles that underlie the moral life. Perhaps a worse way is to falsify these principles, to claim and even to believe, for example, that theft or rape is something good. Still, one can become vicious merely by living as if what, were, what is wrong were right and by refusing to think about this difference. Iago from Shakespeare's Othello exemplifies the man who, who really thinks at some level that something wrong is right. And Anatole Karagin from Tolstoy's War and Peace exemplifies the man who never asked these questions. Uh, Tiberius Caesar sounds more like Iago. Caligula so sounds more like Anatole. Now, Iago may well imagine that he lives beautifully, though he's wrong. Anatole perhaps sees only pleasure, even in beauty. But note that either man must see the falsehood of the principles he lives by, at least for fleeting moments of his life. I recall the memoirs of a former mob boss in which he describes a night he looked in on his sleeping children. He felt shame at the life he lived and saw what an ugly life he offered those children. Unfortunately, it was many years before he could be moved, more by fear than by disgust, uh, to change his life. One last comment about moral beauty before I go on to consider its corruption. There are, in fact, many kinds of beauty. Uh, I intend to speak more distinctly to this uh, next semester in a talk on the beauty aimed at in the imitative arts. Here I will just assert that there are at least, perhaps precisely, four kinds of created beauty. Uh, my defense uh, will be no more, uh, will involve no more than pointing out uh, the ways such beauty relates to our knowing powers. First, there is mere sensual beauty, uh, the object of our sensitive powers, both external and internal. Uh, sensitive powers, like uh, the internal powers, like imagination, memory, and a power uh, seated in the brain that Aristotelians call the cogitative power. Uh, the neuroscientists describe it as if it's in the prefrontal lobe of, of the brain. Uh, I'm going to call this judgment here. Okay. Uh, second, there is artistic beauty, uh, the object of judgment, uh, taking something sensible. Uh, but according to an imaginative representation. Okay. Uh, third is moral beauty, but I want to pass by this for a moment and turn to a fourth kind of beauty, what we philosophers call beauty as a transcendental. In this sense, everything is beautiful, universal or singular, to the extent that it exists and fulfills its essence, or just is an essence. <laughs> Some things are also ugly insofar as they fall short of what they should be. 
This beauty is grasped precisely by the mind or intellect, even if it must turn to lower sensitive powers to pay attention to its object. Now, the moral life, as I've argued, does not exist apart from attention to that life. Further, this attention is not merely the work of the intellect as a separable and immaterial power of the soul. Uh, that's why ethics cannot cause a moral life immediately. Uh -uh. It's impossible. Some people think so, as Aristotle points out. Uh, the moral life consists in bringing real, sensible beings, ourselves, those we interact with and other things of various natures, under concepts that express what, those, what they are and what they're like, as well as whether the actions concerning them are right or wrong. This can only happen concretely in the here and now, and this can only happen if we attend to them and judge them, not merely in the intellect according to its abstract power, but insofar as the intellect works in the power of judgment, located in the prefrontal lobe of the brain, uh, to size up and evaluate the particular uh, qualities and conditions of ourselves and all the other things involved in our moral actions. So taken, the intellect at work in the power of judgment experiences the beauty or ugliness of the moral life as found in real, sensible beings. Now, ugliness as such can never be pleasing. The ugly in the moral life, no less than anywhere else in life, has only one power, and that is a power to repel. And in this sense, no one desires or enjoys a life of regrets and contradictions. Everyone flees this life to the extent they attend to it. And this is true of bad men as well as good men, though bad men do not do this successfully. Though ugliness cannot please us as such, it can please us insofar as it takes on the appearance of the beautiful. Under the guise of beauty, ugliness can have tremendous power to move us. This is true in the moral life, perhaps even more than in any other part of life. Now, this guise of beauty has a name. We call it glamour. But I'm not speaking here merely of glamour as a certain ideal concerned with physical beauty, wealth, pleasure, what we associate with Hollywood, the jet set, things like that. This is certainly a species of false beauty I'm speaking of. Being cool, I claim, is another species. And there are almost innumerable other species. Uh, I, I'll say a little bit to make the general nature of glamour clearer. As in many other cases, the etymology of the word glamour helps us understand its meaning. In origin, glamour is merely a Scotch pronunciation of the word grammar. Uh, probably after a little Scotch, the, the, they developed that. Uh, the word grammar, this is the really exciting part of the lecture, the talk here. The word grammar begins in English as a name for the art concerned with correctly making speech. Uh, and it has retained the, that, that meaning. But the association of grammar with writing led to an extension of the name to refer to all learning involving books. Then, especially under the form grammary, it came to name occult learning, magic, and necromancy. Some say it developed this sense because, quote, all learning fell under suspicion. I suspect it may well have developed the sense because necromancy, magic, and the like involves what we call spells that one must decipher or spell out from a book. 
Once grammar named the knowledge of such magic incantations, it came to name, especially under the Scottish pronunciation, the spell itself, and then the magical and deceptive beauty that such spells produce. Now, this is what we Catholics still renounce at Easter when we're asked, do you renounce the glamour of Satan? Uh, and we respond, I do. Uh, notice, however, that insofar as this power comes from Satan, it has one purpose, to draw us toward a false understanding of right and wrong. More precisely, he intends that we should see something wrong as if it were right. Uh, so the serpent tempted Eve, ye shall be as gods. Now I wish to move beyond the dictionary entries concerned with words, whether Satan is immediately at work or not, beauty of a superficial form often draws us toward things that are not substantially beautiful. I use the language appropriate to bodies here and distinguish between the substance and its surface. In the moral life, beauty moves us easily enough at just this level. We feel attracted for those who have good looks, even when we see that they have no moral fiber, even when we think they're outright cads or Jezebels. Uh, we often avoid someone ugly, even when we know him to be good, perhaps better than ourselves or our friends. Such superficial or specious beauty bears the name of glamour in its moral sense, precisely insofar as this beauty has the power to draw us towards something intrinsically ugly. Glamour does not name the intrinsic ugliness as such. It does name a kind of beauty, but it names a superficial or accidental beauty given to something substantially and intrinsically ugly. Before proposing that cool names a particular form of glamour, let me point out some other kinds. Now, hypocrisy clearly names a moral action as something wrong, ugly, and repulsive. No one feels inclined toward hypocrisy, precisely as we conceive it under this name. Right? Nobody says, oh, I want to be a hypocrite. Uh, um, rather, we use the name to condemn actions and to rebuke persons who perform such actions. But we also have a name for hypocrisy insofar as it has the power to appear as something good and beautiful. It's a little more... Uh, uh, sophisticating that, we call it self-righteousness. Now, this name recognizes that acts properly described as self-righteous are in fact hypocritical. But the name also makes clear that hypocrisy has its power for the self-righteous because it makes them seem righteous. So self-righteousness names hypocrisy as the substance of a moral act insofar as it appears under a surface or appearance of righteousness. Likewise, prodigality and gluttony name acts precisely as they are ugly. But the same acts conceived as sumptuous suggest the abundance of pleasure these acts provide as contributing or even constituting a, a beautiful life. And if some portion of life really should abound in the pleasant, it becomes even easier to imagine a life wholly given over to such abundance as something beautiful when it, isn't, when it is in its substance ugly. Again, even a name that expresses the highest form of good, nobility, also names a, a particular kind of glamour. The word noble first signifies the good is desirable for its own sake, even if it were not pleasant. It names that good, it names the good that perfects us and makes us good but it also names some part of society 
as if that part has the responsibility to lead the whole society to the attainment of that very good, the noble good. But the word also names the mere trappings of the society, of that part of society, insofar as it cultivates its own interest and privilege at the expense of society at large. So aristocracy, glamour, uh, sorry, aristocracy, nobility, can appear to, to people who are part of it uh, as a kind of glamour to cultivate their own uh, advantage and so on instead of the noble good itself. Now, I've mentioned three forms that glamour takes. In each of these cases, some aspect of the moral life gives rise to a name that expresses something beautiful as it is tied to a particular defect or corruption of the moral life. Further, in each case, the beauty masks that defect or corruption and thus allows that defect or corruption to take hold of us. Now, what I've said so far looks toward the claim I'm now going to make. I'm proposing that the word cool has come to name a particular species of glamour and that this species of glamour may well be the most powerful corruptive moral force in our time. Here I could, and again, I'm thinking most powerful because of its breadth uh, other forms might actually do worse in particular cases, but they don't affect so many people. Uh, the, the glamour of, of taking on a satanic appearance just doesn't draw that many people, right? Uh -uh. Uh, so here I can only suggest the second point. To make the first point, I'll do three things. First, I'll look at how the word came to name a species of glamour, Second, uh, I will describe the target or type that the species of glamour proposes for the moral life. Third, I'll discuss how this type opposes the happiness that the moral life aims at. I'm going to really do those second, the second and third things more or less at the same time. The etymology of the word cool helps make clear how it came to name a species of glamour. From the word's opposition to hot and the association of heat with passion, it next names those not excited by passion or not disturbed by passion. This sense is already found in Beowulf and in Chaucer. So it's very, very old in English. In the 1940s, however, <laughs> it's almost a century ago, it doesn't seem that long to me. But, uh, so in the 1940s, however, it became associated with jazz music. The Oxford English Dictionary cites the 1947 album Cool Blues by the Charlie Parker Quartet as the first evidence of this meaning, which they gloss as restrained or relaxed in style. The name is almost of necessity extended to those performing such music, and it is also extended to those who enjoy cool music, and most importantly, those who, who are relaxed and unemotional in the way this music is. Let, let me note, uh, uh, I think there, uh, uh, Francois Couperin might uh, uh, portray the most virtuous uh, uh, relaxed music there is. I think it's a good, good opposite to cool, cool music this way, yeah. especially his, uh, his uh, royal concerts and uh, new concerts. Now, let me agree with the people who object to the claim that relaxed music is unemotional. More important, let me note that a further development of the word has the power of expressing uh, that emotional side. Although the word clearly has a meaning tied to deficiency, so we speak of a cool welcome 
uh, and so on. The word develops a decidedly favorable and positive sense, for like, uh, uh, I mean, has positive content, which the Oxford English Dictionary defines as assured and unabashed in demeanor, where the circumstances would call for diffidence and hesitation, calmly or deliberately audacious or impudent in making a proposal or demand, said of a person and their actions, persons and their actions. Here the passions are at work. Further, however someone may intend this sense as something good or bad, cool in the moral sense I'm describing, cool in the moral view I'm describing, considers it not only as something good, but as a goal for the whole of life. Now let me focus my claim that cool names a species of glamour. I'm not merely stating here that the word names a habit or temperament that corrupts the moral life in the way that self-righteousness names hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy's power to con convince one that he's righteous. Rather, I'm claiming that cool names the beauty at which one aims in, his understanding, in this understanding of life. The word cool bursts forth in appreciation of something happening or something done in just the way the Greek word kalon would, would in a platonic dialogue. I'll illustrate this claim by, loosely trans, by loose translation of some lines from the opening of Protagoras where Socrates encounters a friend who suspects he has just spent time with uh, Alcibiades. I'm replacing the word usually translated by beautiful or handsome with cool. And I, I, I could have picked up 20 or 30 other places. I had to restrain myself. It was so much fun. Uh, so the cool, the, sorry, the friend says more or less, when I saw Alcibiades the other day, the man seemed so cool. When Socrates says that, yes, he's just been with Alcibiades but had no thought of him and forgot that he was there, the friend insists, you could not have come upon someone more cool than Alcibiades, not in this city. But Socrates says, a lot cooler. Someone from here, the friend asks, or from out of town? From out of town, Socrates answers, from Abdera. The friend responds, and this guy from out of town seems so cool to you that he seems cooler than Alcibiades? And Socrates explains, how could the wisest man not be the coolest? Uh, I, I, I note there's also another word used in the Protagoras. I think it's, one, it's in many ways the center of the Protagoras, denos, terrible, but used uh, uh, in an appreciative sense, and they usually translate it clever, uh, that I think would fit the English phrase, scary cool. And, and uh, at, the heart of the, at the heart of the Protagoras is Socrates claiming, you said that Protagoras was scary cool, but he's not. <laughs> of course, this sense of the word cool did not develop to name wise men. It really expresses something we see or imagine in a character like James Bond and a persona like James Dean. I suspect if Alcibiades were around today, we would think it names him too. Now, it names these men primarily from a certain beauty in the way they act. They do things in a cool way. They have a relaxed and confident manner. And this manner is not itself the result of any effort. It results from the temperament that nature has given them. No one is thoroughly cool who has had to cool down. The beauty that is, actually, you see that uh, uh, in the magnificent uh, 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 dance scene in uh, um, uh, uh, West Side Story, cool. Uh, um, uh, 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 the having to cool down just showed that that guy was not as cool as the, 
the one who told him to cool down. Uh, and it is a great scene. I, I wouldn't stop anyone from seeing it, but maybe it's children or something. Anyway, so the beauty that is precisely cool follows this effortless, relaxed, and confident reaction and interaction with the vagaries of life. But one must not confuse the relaxed character of the cool man with patience. Patience involves effort. Not only must a patient man withstand things opposed to his inclinations, he must do, for, do so for some time and develop patience as a habit. He's neither indifferent nor without concern. Rather, his desire that something eventuates in the right way causes him to restrain actions based on impulse. This desire leads him to observe and to allow things to turn out well and to assist insofar as he can, can help in this. The cool man is relaxed because he, is, he feels satisfied with himself and because, and, and he, oh, sorry, and because he finds effort wearisome. It cramps his style. Effort is work and work is only a curse for the cool. As James Bond makes quite clear, a cool man may well have employment but this employment is play. With James Bond, it may be play for him, even if not for others. For our sports heroes, who are very cool, employment is play in the strictest sense of the word. For, this, for the same reason, actors and musicians are very cool. They seem to live a life of play. Again, one must not confuse the, act of, the lack of passion from which such a man takes the name cool with temperance or moderation, and certainly not with chastity. Uh, he differs from the moderate man, to use that name to include all these virtues, in several ways. First, someone cool may well have intense and violent passions, but they never interfere with his acting and reacting in a relaxed manner. If they do influence his action, they only encourage that relaxed manner, perhaps by heightening his determination and confidence. Second, those who have the virtue of moderation are eminently concerned with the good of others. They do not eat too much, in part, to see that others have enough. They're chaste because sex brings children into the world who deserve proper care and education. In particular, a man who is chaste cares deeply about the whole life of the woman he takes to his bed. Not so the cool. Together with the cool man's confidence in his own abilities is an even deeper sense of where they end. The cool man sees the fact that he cannot bring about a good life for others, or he cannot try to do so without losing that equanimity that defines him. He would become anxious about the evils that might befall those he loves and feel the need to assist in something he cannot fully control. This leads to a particular kind of ennui, a weariness, or perhaps a kind of despair. He cannot care about others so much that it will disturb his own relaxed psychological state. This might sadden someone cool. The cool can be iconically sad when they see those they love in trouble. I think there are hundreds of movies uh, along these lines. Suppose a young woman turns up pregnant. The cool boyfriend cannot be wholly indifferent. He feels bad. But so far as I can see, this is at root of self-pity. He would like to do something, but he cannot. Uh, if there's no other solution, he'll have to turn away from her, or rather from them. Of course, he might... He himself might suggest marriage, but this will only be cool because it agrees with his present feelings and circumstances. Were it a burden, it would not be cool. 
and uncool things do not happen to cool people. Or important uncool things do not happen to them. At least it's not cool when they do happen to cool people. I would note here the enviable situation of James Bond. He lives in a world in which the women that he sleeps with are not only independent and liberated, they do not exist when the film ends or the book is closed. The world of James Bond is a fantasy. I, I think it would be really funny if, if one of the films started with the last Bond girl calling up and saying, James, <laughs> we got a problem. In the real world, however, the distance that separates cool men established, sorry, in the, in the real world, the distance that separates cool men from the children they conceive outside marriage is part of a deadly fantasy. This is the fantasy that such unborn children not only belong to their mothers alone, but that they are disposable parts of their mothers. I have argued that the relaxation of the cool man is not patience, and that the moderation of his pleasures flows from his temper, perhaps a kind of despair rather than a tempering and moderation of his desires. Now I propose that his confidence and daring are not bravery. First, as already suggested, his daring deeds are always pleasant to him. Even on the battlefield, he maintain, maintains his cool because he experiences battle as play or feels so great a confidence in his own ability. And he does this from a temperamental ease, not from a habit of facing difficulties that threaten even his emotional stability. If he had found them difficult, he would have gone and done something else. Uh, even if he finds out later that luck has caused his success, this does not disturb him. He can laugh at this in part from the ease he possesses by nature and in part from the relation the cool man has to luck. I'll discuss this, his luck in a moment. A second aspect of the cool man's daring deserves attention. I think our association of cool with athletes, adventurers, superheroes, and spies, and the like, makes clear that the confidence and daring in their actions differs little from that of irrational animals. They move and react, at least in our imaginations, the way a tiger would, the way a wolf does. Perhaps the greatest confirmation of this is the pleasure they take in doing this. Such acts, in fact, cease to be cool if the thrill and elation is lost, unless, of course, luck should restore it. We do imagine warriors and soldiers to have such cool, but I think that most are ready to admit that a battlefield does not remain cool for long. We begin to form the habit of bravery just when we see that we must summon confidence and daring for the sake of goods much greater than that heady pleasure found in daring deeds. The defense of family and the city not only keep a brave man on the battlefield despite the fear that makes him cautious, the love of such goods also checks the impulse to react with the irrational prowess of the big cats. But of course, the brave man is patient. And the brave man is also prudent. The cool man, at best, is clever. He certainly has expended no effort to understand those with whom he lives in community or to understand the nature of the actions that, he, that are involved. If he does understand them and their motives and their actions, this arises from a native sensibility and often enough, sensitivity, better word there, and often enough from selfish interests. If the cool man is clever, 
He'll size up situations with the ease of an irrational animal, or he might even give himself over to planning his action, but he does this because it pleases him in one way or another. Of course, the cool man may also be rather dumb. He may even revel in his deficiencies as if they save him from the various responsibilities that entangle the clever. Uh, Likewise, in his native ignorance, the cool man may have a benevolent simplicity that makes him agreeable to the discerning, if not not more successful than the clever. If a cool man lacks cleverness, however, he will never recognize that he must work even harder than others to figure out that most important human fact, how to live. If he is really cool, it will all work out. This leads me to a last observation about the cool man, one I've mentioned and promised to discuss. The cool man is lucky. This luck allows him to remain relaxed and confident without the misfortunes that befall those less cool. Luck also makes up for his lack of intellect or his neglect to study life and the difficulties it presents with the care and diligence that define the prudent man. A few unlucky things may happen to someone cool, and he may well have the cool to turn them to his advantage. So an unlucky death for James Dean seems to have been lucky for him as an actor and film idol. Uh, It turns out it wasn't so lucky for the man who was right along with him, uh, 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 whose life was ruined, uh, uh, as it turns out. I think he was a a car mechanic or maybe built built racing cars and so on. Uh, But once luck turns completely against someone cool, he simply cannot work out his life without effort, thoughtfulness, concern for others, and vulnerability to those others. Even if we think he really was cool himself, life was not cool to him. Let me note in passing several things I do not have time to develop. First is my suspicion that fear of this vulnerability to those we love and admire is the root cause of the power that this form of glamour has upon us. This explains another fact about being cool. This form of glamour is more proper to men than to women, though it affects them both, the way that Hollywood glamour is more immediately, more immediate to women. Men, I suggest, have a greater fear of such vulnerability, and women are more able, through, especially through their relationship to children, to establish relationships with others merely through nature, even without virtue. But much harder for men to do that without virtue. Here, too, I can point out one of the most prominent notes of the beauty we call cool. It thrives on its distinction from the ugliness of being uncool. Inevitably, the cool separate themselves from and look down upon the uncool. This occurs, I suggest, both from the fear of taking on the ugliness of the uncool and the lack of that integrative power that virtue offers. Uh, no one is truly virtuous who rejoices in the fact that the wicked are wicked. Uh, um, To make an end of it, and and therefore not them, right? Uh, To make an end of it, a cool life imitates many aspects of a beautiful life. A virtuous man is is relaxed and confident. His desires do not wreak havoc in his life. He grasps things uh, clearly and often sizes them up quickly. But the good man does so because he has expended effort throughout his life. For this reason, one Latin name for a good man is studiosus. This corresponds to a Greek name for the same, spudaios. We often translate these by the English word serious, and this is not altogether wrong. The good man takes life seriously, and he is earnest. 
But the critical sense of these words is sometimes expressed by zealous. The good man cares so much about life and living rightly that he works harder at this than at anything else. Cool names a beauty that arises precisely insofar as one does not make an effort. Uh, Aristotle mentions an objection regarding moral responsibility. Some say, what if he's just the sort of man that does not take pains in life? Now, this is not just the excuse the cool man makes. That is that he is not the sort to take pains in life. This is his ideal, the very maxim by which he lives. When life seems to work out well for such a man, especially in the face of the failure of so many who take pains, it seems beautiful. We have named, we have named that beauty from its coincidence with the refusal to take pains in life. And it is certainly attractive to those uninclined and to those afraid to take pains. So, there you go.